The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 41 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank the Morbidology podcast, whose host Emily Thompson is one of my favorite true crime people, and she has an awesome true crime blog that's also called Morbidology. So be sure to check her work out. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Thank you, and now on with the show. On May 16, 1982, a Sunday... Shortly after midnight, 19-year-old Brenda Lacombe left her grandmother's apartment on Fulton Street in Lowell, Massachusetts, and was never seen alive again. The young mother of an eight-month-old son had spent a quiet night playing cards and drinking wine. Her movements after leaving the apartment are unclear. She told her grandmother that she planned to stop at her boyfriend's house, but according to Brenda's boyfriend, she didn't make it to his home. When Brenda didn't come home and didn't call, her family became worried. She had never left for any extended period of time, and if there was ever a time she went away, it was only for a day or so, and she always let her family know. Brenda, who was the third child in a family of nine, lived with her father, Ernest. His home was also on Fulton Street, not far from Brenda's grandmother's apartment. Brenda was soon reported missing. Family and friends asked neighborhood residents if they had seen her, but none had. The only thing that they knew for sure was that Brenda didn't run off or abandon her son. That wasn't something she would do. For weeks, Brenda's family was left to wonder what happened to her. Then, on Friday, June 4th, almost three weeks after Brenda vanished, a partially nude body was discovered in the town of Harvard, Massachusetts, about 17 miles southwest of Lowell. The remains, found in woods behind a stone wall along Littleton County Road, were determined to be that of a woman. Examination and a dental comparison confirmed that the remains were those of Brenda Lacombe. Brenda's clothes were partially shredded. Although Brenda's remains were badly decomposed and had been scattered, perhaps by animals, police quickly ruled Brenda's death a homicide, but cause of death was not able to be determined, although it appears she may have been beaten. The news of Brenda's death shocked and saddened her family and friends, and forever altered her son's path in life. Brenda's family wondered who would do something like this to the 19-year-old mother, and why. Rumors and theories began to circulate, and unfortunately, some of them concerned Brenda's background. Some thought that her past may have caught up with her. Just like any of us, Brenda was human and wasn't perfect. It turns out that Brenda had arrest for prostitution and drugs and she had supposedly worked as a topless dancer. Some felt that her death might be related to some of these activities. Others felt that it might be related to an arson case in which Brenda may have been a witness. Still other residents felt that Brenda was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time 
and cross paths with a dangerous stranger. But no matter the motive for Brenda's murder, her family and friends wanted answers. They didn't feel that Brenda deserved to be murdered and dumped like trash alongside a lonely wooded section of road. They wanted people to remember Brenda, not for some of the dark parts of her life, but for some of the brighter parts. They wanted her to be remembered for her quick-witted humor, and as someone who loved her son, and loved music, in particular Bob Seger. As I mentioned earlier, Brenda had some dark parts of her life, but she didn't deserve what happened to her. Not much happened with Brenda's case. The police looked into various possibilities surrounding the murder, but to some, their investigation left something to be desired, and some promising persons of interest were questioned once, if at all. As the months and years passed following Brenda's murder, reports were lost, and investigators were transferred on and off Brenda's case. Brenda's family never gave up hope. Her sister even went to the library doing her own research into the murder, digging for any kind of clues she could find. She took her young daughter Lacey with her. While Lacey was born after her aunt had been murdered and never got a chance to meet her, the mystery of what happened interested her young mind. As she got older, Lacey took an interest in Brenda's case, mostly from a genealogical standpoint, but soon found herself playing detective in her aunt's case. She began compiling everything she could about her aunt Brenda's case, reports, files, witness and police statements, everything she might need to try and solve Brenda's murder. But just as the police are stumped, the answers also elude Lacey, who's now in her 30s. But that hasn't stopped her from trying to figure out what happened to the aunt she never knew over 37 years ago. Lacey joined me to discuss her aunt Brenda's murder and the aftermath. She talked about potential theories and suspects and gave me a tour of her efforts to solve the case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey listeners, how much money do you make? If the answer is not enough, how does the opportunity to start making $40,000 a year sound? Even better. What if I told you you could double that to 80000 in just a few years? If that's something that interests you, then you should check out truck driving jobs. With the improved economy and high-demand commercial trucking industry, the need for truck drivers is definitely high. CDL.com makes it easy to get a commercial driving license and find the job that's right for your needs. Find opportunities in your town or over the road. On CDL.com, you can create a driver profile, access high-paying long-term and short-term trucking jobs, and apply to jobs in just minutes. It doesn't get any easier than CDL.com. With plenty of new jobs and schools around the country, get your trucking career started at CDL.com. Explore a truckload of jobs for the trucker in you. Once again, visit CDL.com. It could change your life. Hi, Lacey, and thanks for joining us to discuss your Aunt Brenda's case with us. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. So your story is an interesting one. You never met your Aunt Brenda, is that right? I have not. No, I didn't. And and Brenda was your mom's sister? She was, yes. Okay. And despite never meeting Brenda, you've made it your mission, it sounds like, to find out what happened to her. How did that come about, and, and what made you have this determination to find out what happened to an aunt that you never got to meet? Um, well, Mike, I got into doing ancestry research a few years ago. Um, I connected with a distant relative out in California, and um, she had sent me a letter that Brenda had wrote um, to her mother in December 1981. Um, this was just about five months before Brenda disappeared. Um, the letter was thanking her mom, uh, for a Christmas present that she had got Brenda's son, Matthew. Um, um, so this kind of sparked some memories for me when I was a kid, um, cause my mom used to take me with her to the library and she would search through tons of, um, those old newspaper reels, um, on the old slide projectors. So she was looking for clues in her sister's case. I didn't entirely understand it at the time. Um, but I do remember it very well. Um, I remember going with her to people's houses who lived nearby to where Brenda was found. I also remember a lot of frustrating phone calls she had with the police for her watching, uh, or rather watching her write long um, letters to the newspapers. She was hoping that would get someone's attention. So this is a matter um, pretty much of um, 
why that inspired me to start looking further into it. I realized that I had more resources. Um, and, um, I was also not, everything was very painful for my mom to be doing this. I was able to look at it from a different perspective and take all things into account. So this is something that's been in your life pretty much since you were a kid one way or another. Oh, for, for as long as I can remember. Yep. And, and luckily research methods are probably a little bit easier with the internet and, uh, you know, the digital age, you don't have to go to the library and dig through books and papers and stuff looking for, for stuff like your, your mom had to do. No, but I still did that. I still do that, (laughs) but definitely everything's online too, but yeah, one more tool just to make it a little bit easier for you, hopefully. Absolutely. So anything that you found out about your Aunt Brenda, who she was, what she was like, uh, and about her life, you've had to get from other people uh, or out of newspaper articles. Um, but based on all of that, what you've been able to find out, do you feel as, you've, as if you've come to know Brenda a little bit? And can you tell us what kind of person she was based on that? Um, yes, actually, um, I've learned quite a bit about her. Um, something that I really... One of my favorite things about this is that I've got to learn um, really nice things to tell her son, Matthew. And, um, you know, he, he was a baby when she died. So he didn't, there's a lot of things he didn't know. And he was also adopted. So that's a big uh, blank part of his life. But um, pretty much the first thing I think of uh, when I think of Brenda is Bob Seeger. Because <laughs> uh, she, loved, she loved Bob Seeger. Um, she loved Christmas. She loved her family. Um, she used to spend a lot of time um, with her siblings and her cousins. Um, she would babysit them, and she'd take them to the park a lot. Um, she uh, Basically, you'll hear all of them talk about um, how much she loved her family. She had a really kind heart. Um, I, I talk a lot to her old friends, too. Um, one in particular will say um, how Brenda didn't judge anyone for anything. Um, which is why she thinks that, you know, this is why somebody killed her. Um, she thinks that Brenda, Brenda tried to escape from, from reality and she fell into the wrong crowd. So, um, so the world lost a beautiful soul. Um, and she's, she's missed greatly by them all. Uh, they remember little nicknames and things. Um, my uncle remembers every time he went over a bridge that she would, she would tell him how beautiful the water was and, and to look at the water. So now he's thinking about that all the time. I know also they used to go to the White Mountains for Christmas and stuff. I think because Brenda's birthday was just a few days before Christmas. This is probably why this was a, a favorite time for her coming from a big family. Um, she probably felt extra special at the time. Um, my uncle uh, remembers how shortly before Brenda died that she had been asking people to go with her whenever she left um, the house when she was walking somewhere. Uh, so that's something that sticks with him too is, is that he didn't always go with her. You know, he was a little bit older living his life too. But I've heard a, a few people say that too, that she wouldn't leave the house at the time um, without taking her son Matthew or somebody walking with her. So it was clear that everybody knew something was going on that she was afraid of at the time. I think she got led down a, um, down a road where she ended up meeting guys that pretty much used her as a punching bag, um, which was really sad. I know that she was sad um, when Matthew's father had left her. And um, just a lot, a lot she went through that kind of led up to, to what happened to her, just her whole life. But I, I wish I did meet her. Um, I've, I've definitely heard a lot about her. I heard that she had a, a, a wild spirit, but I also at the same time heard that she was um, soft-spoken and kind, um, that she was fun to be around. So all these things, I feel like I've, I've got to know her in a different way. Well, it, it definitely sounds as if you've been able to uncover some things about her and her life to help you piece together you know who she was oh for sure and, and I think it's important that 
um, that she's remembered for who she was, not just, you know, the, the, the dead girl that was found on the side of a stone wall. You know, it's especially important for her son to hear these things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's one of the main focuses of this podcast is to remember the person and that they're not just a, a statistic, uh, a murder victim. They were real people with real lives and real uh, dreams. And, and uh, I think that's always important to to shed light on that. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So in order for you to dive into your aunt's case, you've, you've really had to dig deep. You've been an armchair detective, essentially gathering reports and files and um, trying to search for clues in the case. How hard has that been? And after gathering and compiling all that stuff, what has your research told you about Brenda's case? I feel like I built the case now. <laughs> um, not just because her case file... Um, was lost because um, a Lowell police officer took her file home and he, there's no explanation after that. But in, in doing this, I've, I've been taught by people of various backgrounds, all different um, things, things that people wouldn't think of. I would say as creative as you are is as far as you can go with learning information. Um, I've, I've had so many resources that it's been unbelievable. So many amazing people that I couldn't have um, come this far without. I actually acquired an original case report just uh, not too, too long ago, which since I had so much research saved up already, I was able to fill in a few of the redacted pieces, um, which has been incredibly helpful to direct me um, in, in the, in a better direction to figure out what I'm, what I'm trying to, piece here. There's just so much information and there were so many terrible people that were around at the time. Um, I've, I've figured out, you know, how to use FOIA and, and that there's some things that you just can't make happen or you can continue to try. Um, but then there's always a different way to get there. You know, I've talked to, uh, retired, uh, detectives. I've, um, spoke with medical examiner that um, worked on her case, one of them, who was willing to go over the autopsy report with me had I been able to get it. Um, but the ME office in Boston um, said that they don't have it, and I've tried many times to get that. I also have, um, interestingly, her death certificate doesn't say, um, it still says pending investigation. And I and I spoke to the funeral directors who told me that Nowadays, even if it is a cold case, it has to at least say something. It can't say a pending investigation. Um, so I've tried really hard to get that. Um, I've, I've also found that nowhere, none of these places like, um, you know, the town she lived in, the town she was found in, uh, the, the police from the town she lived in or where she was found, um, you know, then there's also the Worcester County, Middlesex County. Um, there's let me see. I don't know if I said the funeral place already, um, but they also have pending investigation. And all of these people thought that that was strange. So now this makes me think, was this something to do with, um, you know, a cover up? Initially, that's something you think. But then you start to realize how terrible cases were handled back then, that um, the crime scenes were often compromised. And now um, the police you know, they don't really want to bring that to light, how terrible things were handled back then. And if it's on their end, I don't, you know, why would they want to do that? Why would they want to point that out? And it makes it more difficult for the people that are actually doing their job and, you know, are really good at what they're doing to not have the pieces that they need. Um, I also found that good old fashioned police investigation is, is, doesn't seem to happen anymore. And I think that would be huge in getting a lot of cases solved. I don't know why they don't re-interview. I understand that it's been many years and um, they don't think anything new can come of it, but there's, there's the other side of that where, you know, maybe somebody died and they feel comfortable speaking, or maybe they remembered something that they didn't think of then or didn't think related to the case. Um, or, you know, we have social media now. So many things come together. Um, 
that we're be able to, you know, we're able to piece things together better. Which, and, and when you have, um, you know, everybody working together in that way, you're more likely to get answers, which I, I've come quite a ways um, with finding information. Even the, you know, the detectives, I've given them a lot of information in different things, and, and some was stuff they didn't have, which makes me feel really good that I'm able to um, do things like that, find pieces. Um, even in other cases, I've been able to find information because you tend to network um, with people going through similar things. Um, I've made some really good good friends, um, you know, who who are have been through similar circumstances, um, whether it was, you know, their sister or their aunt or their brother. Um, I've I've made these really um, close relationships, and I feel very fortunate um, to have these people allow me to be a part of their life. Um, it's just it's been an in- incredible experience, and I do hope to make something positive come of her case. Um, if not solving it, although I'm very determined, (laughs) very, very determined. And and anybody will tell you that who knows me. Um, but I do want to, at the very least, make something positive come of all of it. And I've, I've learned so much that I do think I can do that. Uh, it it sounds like you, you, you definitely are on the right track and you know what you're doing. And, and this started, as you mentioned, sort of genealogy related, and then it sort of snowballed into what it is now an investigation by you did you ever see yourself way back then saying this is where you would be at and this is what you would be doing uh right now no not at all um but i do remember when i was little that i'd tell my mom that i was going to solve the case but that was just me being you know like a six-year-old or seven-year-old saying i'm going to figure out who did this with little details on it um but my mom did also tell me at the same time that I can do and be anything I want. And which at that time was, I want to be the president and drive an ice cream truck. <laughs> um, so this is quite a, quite a difference here. Um, I work at an animal hospital and on the side, I am spending pretty much all of my time here, um, you know, trying to find new ways to find answers and, and I definitely didn't see myself here, but I, I really, um, my heart, my heart's in it very much so. And you mentioned um, the police a little bit, past and present. Um, things could have been handled better. People lost reports, it sounds like. Um, and, and now it sounds a little bit, from what you're saying, that maybe they're not doing all they could be doing. Has there been anything positive uh, with the police, any kind of... Um, things that you feel they have done right along the way that have helped the case progress? Uh, as far as the, the case progressing, not so much. No. Um, I do believe that, uh, the detectives that are on the case now have the, you know, the best intentions. Um, but I think that they're not, they didn't have many pieces to work with. And so they also won't, give up what they do have. Although I, I'm very confident that I know more about her case than anybody does. So me having that information would be very helpful. Um, but so back then the detectives, they, um, let me see for an example, um, they showed up to the scene. Um, it was a little after say one thirty, Um, and, when they did that, they called the state to come in. The state came in and they did their, their CSI there, um, you know, taking photographs and things like that, which I don't know where that is, by the way, <laughs> um, any of that. And so about, let me see, that was an hour, an hour and a half after she was found, they were searching the scene. So fast forward to four days later, now, four days later, you got the local police that are going back over the crime scene and they find another body part of hers. Like, I don't understand how that happens, how the, the you know, the local police are going back and doing that and they're finding that and, and how the state didn't find that or how her case was bounced around from, you know, Harvard Police Department to, to Worcester um, DA's office to Lowell then had it again and then it went to Middlesex and then back to Worcester. Now this is all, you know, from 1982 until present where it finally just sat with Worcester. And um, 
those guys were awesome. They, they came and sat with me a few years ago for probably over three hours and they listened to every little thing I said. Well, from when I met them until now, I've learned, um, I've learned so much more. Um, so I'm able to explain things better or I understand what counts in court versus, um, you know, information that they might consider useless, but I don't, I don't believe that to be the case. I just think that there's different categories for where you need to put things. And, um, I learned this from, um, a man in South Carolina. Uh, let me see. Karsten's his last name. He's amazing, but he, he's been, you know, teaching me when he can, he's, a um, retired from the military, uh, these different ways to look at cases. And, and he's really opened my mind a lot. Um, I actually have more help from retired police officers <laughs> than I do the ones that I have now, but I think that they're inundated with cases. Um, I also don't like the fact that there's not, uh, in Worcester, there's not a designated, um, cold case, um, you know, department because the, the ones that are working on that are also working on present cases. Now, there's only so far you can stretch people. And I do understand, and some people might not understand this, but I understand that things take priority. If you just have a, you know, a murder that just happened, you need to get somebody off the street. Um, in these cases, it, it makes me sad that there's not, um, I, I think that if they separated the departments basically and actually focused directly on each piece that they would get, they'd get more if there was better cooperation in between their departments. So I don't necessarily want to say anything negative on their end. Uh, I think maybe Harvard and Lowell let the ball drop. And uh, now the state did to begin with, but now is different. Like if I can find something that they can use, I do believe that, you know, they would move forward. It's just that if they were to actually dig into things like re-interview people, that would be huge because I've talked to people myself that gave me information um, that is, you know, secondhand information, which isn't going to be as valuable um, to them as it is, you know, with, with them saying it directly. Um, so me being able to focus, you know, just on my aunt's case gives me, um, you know, I have more that I can, I can pick apart than they can, um, which is a, is a large reason why I think that I, it's important for us to, to be able to have more of, uh, you know, more records and more of an open case when, when it's been, you know, 30 plus years going closer to 40. And I can only imagine that it's frustrating for a family of a murder victim to possibly know more than the police know. Um, you see that a lot of times in these old cases that the person in charge of, of these newer cases has maybe hasn't looked at the file in ages, if ever, um, because they're working on, like you mentioned, newer cases that are a, a lot easier to solve. Um, so it, it, it does seem scary that sometimes the family members are uh, their own investigator, essentially, and, and know more about the case and some of the police that are actually in charge of, of working on it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I feel sad for people that also don't understand that there's things that they can do, too. They um, they tend to take what's being said to them as that's the final thing there, which isn't the case. Um, one thing I learned is that the way, um, you know, the law speaks, the way uh, the government speaks is, is, a, is a way to elude you where you're just you're reading it and you're just taking that answer that it looks like. But if you read it slowly, you see that you're not actually getting an answer. And if you know how to reword that, you might be able to get an answer. But that's not something you're going to know right away. And, and certainly not if you're very emotional about it, um, which is completely understandable. But also that gives me, um, that makes it a little easier for me to do than it would be, say, you know, my mom or other uh, siblings um, of my aunt. So you've you've learned a few of the uh, little tips and tricks to to uh, adjust things and and try and ask for information in a different way. It sounds like. Oh yeah, yep, many many things like that. 
in different ways to, to get information as well. Um, as far as you know, is, is there any potential evidence or clues that police might have to work with that may lead to Brenda's case being solved one day? Ooh. Well, um, I do believe that the evidence in her case was either lost or destroyed. And um, I actually was told by a retired homicide detective, um, which, you know, I won't say from which town or county or wherever, um, that the case was intentionally botched. So that's a little hard um, when you're sitting there you know, trying to find every, you know, write a letter, you know, FOIA, uh, Freedom of Information Act, everywhere you can possibly think of or dig up old articles. Because if if that's the case, that's going to be really hard to prove because somebody didn't want it to be solved. Um, I do think that there's witnesses that they can talk to, that they will 100% get information that they would be able to work with and see in a different light than past investigators um, have, who I think have, I think the past investigators tend to, uh, tend to, tend to have looked at things um, more how they wanted, uh, more with an ego than, um, than now, you know, there's a, there's a difference. People um, years and years ago used to just think they could solve stuff because they said it without having all these little things to back it up. I definitely think that, um, so I'm working to get my aunt's body exhumed and I do believe that there will be DNA in there. And, um, I think that the detectives would agree with me on that, um, that that would be, you know, the best possible, you know, route to go right now. Um, just because to have solid evidence is, you know, that's the best thing you can have. But I do think that, I definitely think that they could be interviewing people again and I am really bummed out that they haven't done that um there's some people one of the main um well a few of the main suspects actually and possibly all of them have only been interviewed once right after it happened and never spoke to again that doesn't make any sense to me because where a cold case never gets closed I understand that but let's just say um every time they reopen it or look back or you know take it off the shelf then they haven't, you know, looked back at everybody and talked to them. That makes absolutely no sense to me. You have, you have the chance to have new eyes looking at something, but you're not, you know, you're taking somebody's notes that are old. You're, you're taking what they perceive it to be. Um, And you're not, you're not exploring different avenues that you, you might have that, you know, the other investigator didn't have. Um, So that's a real disappointment. Um, I definitely think that can be done for sure. I also think that there's evidence left um, at the crime scene because her body was found in pieces. And they say that that's possibly to do with animals, um, but they don't know that for sure. So I don't rule anything out. And if they're, um, if they went back four days later after already finding her body and they found um, another part of her body, why wouldn't there be more pieces there? If her clothes were shred and she was partially nude, why wouldn't there be more pieces of her clothes there? Because it doesn't sound like they did such a great job uh, for the crime scene investigation to begin with. I think there's definitely things they can do for sure. Yeah, and, and one thing I wanted to touch on you mentioned earlier was just re-interviewing people now that maybe wouldn't talk then or maybe their stories have changed maybe they're afraid of somebody that you know all this time's passed they're not afraid of there there wouldn't be any harm to going out and re-interviewing people now versus what they did back then right and and you know it would show you know family and everything that they're actually taking the initiative like wow they're they're actually spending uh you know hours on this they're doing street time they're just not sitting at a desk sifting through like what can we solve right now all right next you just mentioned suspects a a couple minutes ago without saying any names have you yourself developed any suspects or persons of interest that might have had something to do with your aunt's murder absolutely yes i definitely have um and and you know it's funny it goes right back to the very beginning of the case and you always always restart from the very beginning even if you have to do it over and over and I guess with that, without saying names, is there anything you can t- say about them and, and why you think they might be suspects in the case? Um, 
So there's, um, there's a few people that lived really close by to, um, where she was last seen leaving and also where she lived, which are two, two separate places. Uh, it's hard to, to say stuff without saying stuff. Um, Actually, there's there's probably three or four people that lived really close by to where, um, you know, where she was last seen, which was leaving her grandmother's house. And I believe if those people were talked to again, that they would find new information for sure. Um, and if you've ever been uh, educated on listening to people and how they speak and um when they're telling lies and, and looking over what they said or when they build up a story so that way later on they can bring it back up as to, to you know, to go, to go with the lie that's going to happen in the future. You can, you can piece these things together and it's, you can find different ways to get, uh, get more information just from talking to these people. I definitely have. And there was a lot of people that I, and still, there's still another person that I've yet to reach out to because um, it kind of scares me. One of them is um, is a little bit more powerful in, in what he would be able to do around here, um, potentially. And so I'm, I'm a little more careful with that one, although there's enough people that are aware. I make sure people are, are aware where my concerns are. Um, and that someone always knows. A few people always know. Definitely a few, that's, more than a few. Say that, that makes sense because if you're in here digging up and and stirring the, the hornet's nest, you yourself have got to be worried that if somebody did something like this once before, that maybe they would do it again. So I can understand you uh, being worried or concerned and, and watching out for your, your own uh, protection. Oh yes, definitely. Um, and, and things like, like this, being able to share her story. Um, you know, I've, I've had some things in the news and in the newspaper and, and even, uh, a story coming out in a book soon. Um, those things make me actually feel safe because it would be the stupidest thing for anybody to come near me when it's very well known what I'm doing. And, um, that, that's also, you know, a nice thing to, to think of is that, the, the support is much farther than just people that are close with me. Yeah, so you've got a, a pretty uh, good amount of attention on you in, in the case right now. Um, so it would it does sound like it would be foolish for somebody to, you know, jump in and, and try and do something uh, while you've got all this attention going. Um, and and sure. speaking, speaking of the book, you mentioned the book. Uh, it's by Dennis Griffin. It's called Survivors. Uh and this is a book about cases that seem to not have resolution and there are people like yourself, family members that are searching for answers. How did uh, the book opportunity come along and how happy are you to see your aunt's case featured in a book like that? Well, um, it came about, um, so there was this group started called the Transparency um, Project. And with discussing back and forth with people in like situations, um, about their struggles with the law enforcement. Um, I think it was Denny that came up with the idea to, um, you know, see if everybody could come together or whoever wanted to be a part of this. Um, and so what came out was, um, you know, the name of the book is Survivors. You said that. And um, it, there's about, I think, 19 stories um, from the perspective of the, the victim's family and friends. Um, which the idea is uh, basically to, to bring attention to these cases and, and make a better public awareness of the, the struggles that we've all experienced with the justice system then and now. Um, and it, I feel very, very, very fortunate. It was actually very difficult for me to write <laughs> because I have so much information that I had to break down and make it easier for people to understand um, that don't know anything about my aunt or her case. Um, I'm, I'm happy with how it came out for sure, um, but it, it definitely wasn't easy for me to put that all, you know, in, in a smaller box. 
um, but it's but it's great because there's some details that maybe some people don't know about that will read that, and uh, you know maybe they'll go talk to somebody else who will talk to somebody else, and maybe someone will come out with something, or, or maybe it'll um, you know inspire somebody that wants to help that um, you know is an, a professional um, in something that might help her case progress. Um, there's just a lot of possibilities with it. So I'm very, very appreciative to, um, to Denny and the people that he works with too, for giving us all this opportunity um, to come together and, and give our firsthand accounts um, of, you know, what we've experienced. And I know, I know Denny is a former law enforcement himself and he's probably interacted with countless families that have gone through what you're going through. What was it like interacting with him to, to try and put this, uh, case in into that book um well i, I think i i talked to him before the book started we had a long conversation um he was he was impressed with my researching you know skills and everything and um so it, it was really nice to have him listen to everything you know that that i had to say and um to hear his feedback was very helpful because he also was able to teach me some things that I didn't, um, I didn't know with how, you know, there's, there's ways that the, the court system works or even, you know, he'd say, well, this sounds like this. And then it would give me a better understanding of how to go about what I was doing. Um, so I always appreciate any type of feedback anybody gives me, you know, regardless of, what they do, their profession or where their information came from, but it's extra beneficial, um, you know, to have somebody that is familiar, um, and, and did this, you know, in a prior, you know, in a prior time. And, you know, we mentioned a little bit of, of sometimes you hear about these old retired cops that mess something up or botch something or lost a report. It's always good when you get to interact with some, you know, uh, former law enforcement people that are helping in retirement, trying to do what they can to help people like yourself. Oh yeah. It, it's awesome. I find, um, that they're very, very honest. Uh, I've met, you know, some retired people that will tell me flat out, you know, there is good and there is bad. And, and this is what I believe. And this is what I know. And this is where you're likely to, you know, to get more information or this is what you can't do or, you know, and I, I'll, I'm able to see how far I can push, you know, push my limits and everything too. Well, we're actually going to have Denny Griffin on to discuss the book and some of the cases we've uh, covered on the podcast, actually some of the cases from the book. So that's going to come out as a bonus episode the same day this episode comes out. So uh, when people hear this conversation with you about your aunt, they can just pop right over and get the next episode with Danny and he, he's going to tell about, about the book and some of the other cases in there. So we hopefully spread the word cause that's a, a, a great project to, and I'm happy to help promote it. Um, and bef before we go, I just want to find out um, what is your long-term goals? Is, is it to see an arrest or is it to simply learn the truth about what happened to your aunt? Um, I would love to see an arrest. Um, and, and to get answers from my family, definitely. If the person or people are not alive, then that's, you know, that's always a possibility. So pretty much I, I just want, I want to find the answers. And if the person is alive, I definitely want them to pay, um, which is why I think the, the exclamation will be really helpful because she was a fighter and, uh, you know, I, think there's dna probably under her fingernails and that would be very very helpful so do you have any theories on on why this might have happened to your aunt um so brenda she she and her friend um terry they witnessed an arson fire and uh the state had called them to testify um, neither one of them went uh, they were both afraid of something um since they didn't show up for the court, there was a bench warrant issued for both of them. And Lowell police didn't want this information made public for some reason. Um, they've given little to no information about the fire. Um, what I do know, I got through the fire incident report. There was also somebody who lived um, or was at the house where the fire started. And they actually lived close by to where Brenda's grandmother was, um, where her house was. Um, 
there was also um, rumors about her possibly seeing um, a man in blue, so to speak. Um, so there's a couple different things that are out there, um, you know, that might have something to do with it. Also, um, from time to time, Brenda would um, hitchhike as well. So that's that's in there, too. So there's, uh, it, it seems like there's a, a few different possibilities that might have something to do with her murder. Right. And, and everything seems to always go back to, um, you know, to her being a witness in this fire. Um, just cause everybody knew that she didn't want to go anywhere alone. Um, and then I, I think she may have been getting, uh, threatening phone calls too, but she wasn't telling, um, anybody the details on this which made it more difficult um, for us as family to figure out. Cause I know the, the little police know more about that. And um, that file disappeared, of course. So. So it just adds to the, the, the confusion or the, the lack of answers. Yes, absolutely. And um, just for the record, um, the only thing I'm able to find, and I know I mentioned this before was, you know, the cause of death, was pending investigation, but there was a state trooper um, that told my mom that she was severely beaten to death. So that's that's definitely um, that's definitely something we're aware of. Uh, whether we do get the um, the autopsy report or whether it even exists anymore, is that something you're help, hoping to get from uh, having her body exhumed too? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I've I've tried very hard to get that autopsy report even more so because it's been so difficult to get. It just makes you wonder. And, and even doing the exhumation, it makes me wonder what is actually in the casket. Do we even know? You know, like, is is she in there? You know, or is, is it only part of her that's in there? Um, is there anything on her body? Because we don't really know. You, it's not like there was an open casket. Um, and so, which is also makes me hopeful that there wasn't an open casket because you know that she wasn't, uh, you know, being prepped for a funeral either. Um, and where, you know, part of her is found days later, does that make it more possible or more likely that the medical examiner didn't go over, you know, that other part of her body, um, just because they already went over these other parts. Um, so that also, you know, that's a, that makes me feel hopeful too. And and one other thing I, I didn't want to leave out either. Um, you mentioned earlier regarding um, having the um, exhumation done. Is there uh, a cost? Are you trying to raise funds to do that? I am. Yes. Um, so it's the the cost has been a little difficult to determine. I've seen you know anywhere from seven thousand to ten thousand, depending on uh, what you're doing. We currently have I, I want to say maybe about three thousand. Um, but the the things, since this isn't a common thing, it's harder to piece together what you have to do. Um, so there's the cost for the excavation. There's the, um, you might need to replace the casket and the vault. Um, you might need to pay for having a detail standby, which you'll definitely want to have a detail um, just so that everything would hold up in court. Uh, there's, a, you need a medical examiner and the um, to, I'm hoping that the state um, the state crime lab will pay for the costs, um, which would be really helpful there. I know that in Norfolk County, they paid for Teresa Corley's body to be exhumed. Um, and I've learned a lot from her sister, Jerry Hood. Um, so that that's another thing I'm, I'm kind of hoping that they help with. And then, you know, there's possible cemetery charges and pos- um, policies, and then you have graveside retrieval. So it's been a lot for me to kind of figure out what exactly I need and how do I bring all of these things together. Um, I'm trying to be prepared for all eventualities um, in, in everything that I'm doing here. Um, and, and it would, if her body was moved, it would be, um, I think I'd need a permit and it would cost me even more. But I think that we'll just do the graveside retrieval. I don't think that, you know, her whole body needs to be or whatever's in there to be taken out. Are you doing this through a GoFundMe or something like that? I am, yes. We have the um, the GoFundMe.com slash voice for Brenda. Um, I, I set up something on Facebook, too, recently, but it just, it, it only stayed up for, I think, a couple weeks. Um, but it's all being pulled into the same, the same spot. 
Well, we'll we'll put that in the show notes so people that uh, might be able to help with that will see it and and maybe can help you with that clause. If anyone out there does have information about this case, if somebody, you know, if this rings a bell or they, like we mentioned, they wouldn't talk before, but they have some information now, who should they contact? Well, um, so I have an email, um, which would be avoiceforbrenda at gmail.com. There's also, we're on Facebook, which is Facebook slash avoiceforbrenda. Um, we also have the, um, if anybody's interested in helping with the exclamation, uh, there's gofundme.com slash voice for Brenda. Um, and as far as law enforcement goes, you would be contacting, um, Worcester County DA's office. Um, and it was, I think it's the unresolved squad. Okay. And I have a number for them too, right here for listeners. It's 508-832-9124. Um, and I just wanted to ask you one thing, uh, as far as the investigation to your aunt's murder, how's it been received by your family? Are they, uh, supportive of it and your efforts? They're very, very supportive. Um, my mom is, is very grateful. She's surprised all the time uh, by the information that I get. Um, it keeps her hopes up. She's kind of worn out from, from trying for so many years. So it's nice, um, to see a little spark there. Um, her son, Matthew, is very, very supportive. Um, he doesn't live in this state right now, um, but we talk all the time, and it's it's very important to him. So, so he's very grateful. Um, I have uncles and aunts that, you know, they're thanking me all the time, and, and they're very appreciative for everything. So it's nice to have um, everyone on the same page, too, because I know that that's not always the case. Um, some people, relatives, you know, feel like, it's too much to go over again, and I can understand that, but but I've pretty much got a good, good support system from our family and her friends, too. Well, I think it's safe to say that your aunt would be proud of you, too. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. As we wrap up this episode... I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that I really think you'll enjoy. It's called True Crime Deadline. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. I'm Matt Johnson, boots-on-the-ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the podcast that gives you a unique reporter's point of view, from the yellow crime scene tape to the gavel in the courtroom. We paint a picture on True Crime Deadline with murder, mystery, and missing persons cases. My contacts grant you access to those case files with disturbing new details and exclusive interviews. Details might have you thinking, no, that didn't happen. They didn't do that, did they? And then there's the Oprah-inspired, Where Are They Now? Binge these 30-minute Crime Bite episodes where you get your podcasts. Buckle up, investigators. You're on deadline. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. Until next time. (laughs) 